Go ahead and open your Bibles. We're going to start in Romans chapter 12. We're going to jump around a good bit today. The passage that Cynthia just read is one of the most significant passages for our church. We've been looking to that for 20 years to kind of guide and shape what God has called us to do. Cynthia, can I hand this to you? Thank you. And we're going to be talking today about the core of what we believe he's called us to for the next 20 years. So if you're new to this series, this is our fifth week. And let me just back up and review just a little bit. We started, Lloyd and I together here on week one, telling the 20-year story of Fellowship Bible Church. And there were two big lessons that emerged from the ups and downs of the journey that we've had at Fellowship. The first is, it's a God-shaped story. And the second is, he has never stopped working. And that's true of your story too. Your story's had ups and downs. My story's had ups and downs. It's a God-shaped story. That's how we grow is, is by, you know, highs and lows and everything in between. We're transformed usually more by our struggles than we are by the high points in our stories. So we talked about that, what that meant for us as a church. And then coming out of that in week two, Lloyd outlined, here are the five core values that we believe God would call us to sort of just make official and say, this is who we are. This is the kind of body that he has shaped us to be through our 20-year story. And I wanna review those five core values with you. They'll be up over here on the screen. And we'll say them together, and we're just gonna keep repeating them week after week for a little while so we can kind of get them in our heads. So here are our core values. We are, first and foremost, word-centered. Say that with me. Word-centered. We are spirit-dependent. We are better together. We are courageously real. And we are not about ourselves. And there's a degree that you might say those five values could belong to any church, but I think there's also a uniqueness here. There's a particularity. I don't think there's any other church on the face of the world that would say those exact core values worded that way is who God has shaped us to be. I think it's a beautiful picture of Fellowship Bible Church. It's our culture. It's our DNA. We want to live that out. Then week three of the series, we talked about our mission. So if this is who we are, the mission is what we do. And here's the mission that we talked about we believe God has called us to. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. We talked about how glorify God is the mission of every human being and actually all creation. We talked about making disciples as the mission of the church. So every church is called to make disciples at the highest level. But for fellowship in particular, in the 21st century in Middle Tennessee, a place where everybody moved here to find the good life and to find the life that they think they want and the beautiful surroundings and the great schools and job opportunities and the culture and the music and all that. We believe what they really need is a whole life, a wholehearted life in Jesus. And so you ask, well, why'd you choose the word wholehearted? Why couldn't you have just said life in Jesus? Because we think there's something to the concept biblically of the heart being put back together that best illustrates the kind of life that Jesus is offering to us through the good news. And so last week, Lloyd talked about the theology of the heart. Did you know that the heart, the word heart, is used in scripture over a thousand times? Compare that to the words faith, hope, and love, which combined are used only 750 times. The heart is a big deal. And there's only a couple of occasions in all those 1,000 usages that it's talking about the literal organ, what it's talking about the vast majority of the time is the inner person 
Like the, the you that is the true you. And so Lloyd explained this last week, did a fantastic job. I know a lot of you were out for fall break and other things. If you missed that message, please go watch it because it's so core to this mission to build this on a solid theology. And Lloyd did a fantastic job of unpacking that through the Old and New Testaments. What does it say about the heart? What's wrong with the heart? What is it gonna take for that heart to be transformed? Now, since I can't, replay all of Lloyd's message. I guess I could, but then I wouldn't get to preach this message. What we wanna do is show you a short video. We did not make this video, but we came across it. It's by these two guys that have this website called The Bible Project. And they do brilliant jobs taking complex theological ideas and putting them into easy to remember concepts in video form. This is a great summary of what Lloyd talked about last week. What's the theology of the heart? So take a look on the screen. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life. And there's more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it's like what Nathan said to David, whatever's in your heart, go and do it. So then in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known proverb, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Now the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick. Who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. 
The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So helpful. Thank you to Tim Mackey and John Collins and the Bible Project folks for putting that video together. Now, if you think about that conception of heart, you realize there's a lot more to it than we think. And so Lloyd last week chose four labels, and these are the works that we've been, or words that we've been working on for months together, kind of behind the scenes as we've been doing this vision process. And our Words or labels are very similar to what you saw in that video, but slightly different. So we're going to put them on the screen behind us in the broken pieces of the heart. We believe in the fall, the heart was kind of fragmented or broken and separated. You saw that illustrated there as well. So here are the four areas that we're going to talk about the labels, the thoughts, the emotions, the desires, and the choices. Those four things combined, as, as Lloyd shared last week, represent the heart. Now that's as far as we've come. Now one more thing though, Lloyd gave us a definition last week of wholehearted life in Jesus. If that's our mission, we need to know what that is. Our mission is to help people find it. So let's put the definition on this screen over here. Wholehearted life in Jesus is when, both screens actually, when our thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices unite to find our deepest longings and our greatest hope fulfilled in Jesus alone. So if that's the definition, just leave that up for a couple of minutes. If that's the definition of wholehearted life in Jesus, the next question I want you to be asking is, all right, fine. What does that actually look like? Like, how will I know when I'm getting it? Or, or how do I help someone find it? And so what we want to do today and the purpose of today's message is to illustrate for you or to describe in more vivid detail what someone who is finding wholehearted life in Jesus looks like. Like what's true about them? What are the attributes of a maturing disciple, of someone who is becoming mature in their faith? Another way to ask the question is, what are the outcomes of transformation? And so we've chosen four not by accident. If, if there's kind of four areas of the heart that need to be transformed, our thoughts, our choices, our desires, our emotions, then we're gonna talk about transformation in each of those four areas. And those four categories are gonna become our desired outcomes. Let me give you this illustration that I think for some of you will help you understand this. Imagine if instead of being a part of a church, we all worked for a restaurant. Let's just imagine that restaurant was Chick-fil-A, all right? <laughs> Not sure why I would choose that one, but let's just imagine we all worked for Chick-fil-A. Now, this was my past life, okay? And what I would do with Chick-fil-A for a number of years before I went to seminary was I was assigned to go to different restaurants and consult the owner-operators around their quality, around building sales, around HR issues, all kinds of things, financial return. One of the things I spent my, the most time on was the quality of the food because if the chicken sandwich is not right, 
you're not going to be creating raving fans, okay, which for Chick-fil-A is their target. So we would pull out the Chick-fil-A sandwich. I want to, in fact, I want to show you a picture of a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Now, I'm making you crave something you cannot have today, all right? And uh, the, the local owner-operators are going to thank me tomorrow because you guys are all going tomorrow because the heart craves what it can't have. So this is a Chick-fil-A sandwich. In fact, I used to teach a class called This is a Chick-fil-A Sandwich. And we would pass out the sandwich and we would talk about it. Now, what you don't know if you're not an educated you know, Chick-fil-A employee is you don't know that there are some outcomes. There are some measures of what this sandwich is supposed to look like. So let me just give you an example, but there's dozens of them. The, the chicken itself, just the filet without the bun and the pickles, etc., needs to weigh 4.3 to 4.8 ounces once it is cooked. If it's below that, it's too small. If it's above that, it's too large. The filet, when it's placed on the bottom bun, needs to overlap the bottom edge of that bun by three points at least. If it does not, it is considered to have improper bun coverage. <laughs> so next time you get a small filet on your Chick-fil-A sandwich, just take it up to the front and say, something's wrong with the bun coverage. And they'll be like, you're right. <laughs> How did you know? The bun has to be toasted evenly. It's buttered and then toasted. There need to be, how many pickles? Anybody know how many pickles? That's right, Alan, right at the front. Alan's an old Chick-fil-A guy. Two pickles, unless they're small. And then you can do three. Those pickles should not be stacked on top of each other. They should be spread out evenly so the customer gets a bite of pickle in every single bite. Gets a taste of pickle in every single bite. Now, you put all that together. Here's our description of a Chick-fil-A sandwich. A boneless breast of chicken, seasoned to perfection, hand-breaded and pressure-cooked in 100% refined peanut oil, served on a buttered toasted bun with dill pickle chips. That is a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Now, besides being hungry... Let's make the connection, all right? Besides the fact that I, I stirred your appetite, let's make the connection to our mission. If we're gonna call people to wholehearted life in Jesus, we have to know how to measure it. We have to know what it should look like on the other end of the assembly line. So we've worked hard to simplify. And you know, if you know church history, a lot of churches have worked on what's the marks of a mature Christian or how do you know when you're growing in Christ? And there's literally hundreds of things scripturally we could go to, but we've simplified. What are the four key areas that we're gonna measure, that we're gonna evaluate, that we're gonna look at? What's our target? What is our Chick-fil-A sandwich? If you'll allow me to use this metaphor. And so what we believe God has called us to is what does transformation look like in each of those four categories? And so I'm gonna walk through all four this morning. We're gonna have to go fast for the sake of time. With each one, I'm gonna give you an anchor scripture passage. I'm gonna give you a definition and I'm gonna illustrate it through an example. So let's start with the first one. What does it look like when the area of your thoughts are transformed by the gospel? Well, it looks like this. It looks like a renewed mind, a renewed mind. So now we get to Romans chapter 12, and I want to read verse 2, which is our anchor text for this idea of a renewed mind. Paul is writing, and he says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. By the way, another, word, another way to translate the word perfect in the Greek is complete or whole. So here's the context of this passage. Paul has spent 11 chapters in Romans going through some deep theology, some deep doctrine. And it's in chapter 12. In fact, chapter 12, verse 1, the first word of that verse is therefore the hinge point of the entire book of Romans where he shifts from doctrine to practice. He shifts from theology to praxis, if you think of it that way. He's saying, therefore, here's what you're called to do in light of all that's true. And isn't it interesting? One of the very first things he says is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the Greek for transformed is a verb that we get metamorphosis from. So think about the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It is entire whole person transformation that Paul is talking about, and it starts from the inside out. In other words, it's the idea of something being changed, something being renewed, renewing your mind. You're going to take off something that's old. You're going to replace it with something new. What's the old that needs to be gone from your mind? All the lies, untruths, and half-truths you've been taught to believe by the culture around us, by sometimes even well-meaning people that have taught you things that just aren't true. Let me give you a a silly example of that. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never. It's just not true. Words can do enormous damage. There's all kinds of areas of our lives where we just believe things that aren't true. And God has given us this book to renew our minds. And so what Paul is saying here is transformation has to start with your mind. It starts with a renewal of your mind, a renewal that will end up transforming the whole person like a caterpillar goes through metamorphosis and turns into a whole new creation uh, in, in and of a sense. So let me give you the definition of what we mean by a renewed mind. And we'll put it on the screens for you to look at. Here's what we mean by a renewed mind. As God makes himself known to us, through the written and living word, we are continually transformed by replacing the lies we believe with the truth he reveals. And how does that happen, men and women? It happens by studying God's word, by learning God's word. This is why we teach the way we do. This is the why we're gonna keep teaching expositionally. We're gonna open up a passage of scripture. This is the norm. This is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna explain it because we know transformation's gonna happen as your mind's renewed and my mind is renewed. This is Romans 12, verse two. Now leave that definition up for a minute or two. Let me illustrate this through a story. Let me tell you a little bit about my friend, Andrea. Andrea is about my age, but when she was a teenager, she had a guest speaker come to her church. Now, she was raised in a church. It was a good church. She came from a good Christian background, but she had not realized that the way to be saved is not about her own activities, not about her own works. It was by the grace of God and the grace of God through Christ alone. And a guest speaker came to her church and taught that passage about the woman who came to Jesus and washed his feet with her tears. Some of you are familiar with this. She, she was so grateful for his love and acceptance of her, a sinner. She was crying such tears. She actually washed his feet with the tears falling from her eyes. And then she took her hair and put it down, which would have been scandalous in that day. It was a lavish expression as she dried his feet with her hair. And then the, the teacher went on to explain 
This is you and me. It is nothing that we have done to earn the acceptance and forgiveness of God. It was Christ and the blood of Christ that earned that for us. And for Andrea, for whatever reason, it was that moment that the light bulb went off in her mind. She had a renewed mind through God's word and it totally transformed her. And she can name the moment, the day that that happened. And for some of you, you can also name the moment and the day. For others of you, you don't know the moment and the day, but it was in some, this general time where the light bulb went off and you understood the gospel. Some of you may not be there yet. There's all kinds of other areas in your life too where God's word is transforming you by renewing your mind. As you're changing what you believe, you're taking off the old, putting on the new. That is the first outcome, the first characteristic of someone finding wholehearted life in Jesus. It's a renewed mind. Now we're gonna go to our next and we're gonna go to the lower right quadrant and I'll explain at the end why we're gonna go in the order that we're gonna go into, but here's the question. What's the outcome then of transformation in the area of our emotions? What is the outcome of that? Well, we're gonna refer to it as healthy relationships. Healthy relationships as your emotions begin to be transformed and that area of your life becomes more healthy, it results in healthy relationships. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, how did you get from emotions to relationships? Okay, let's talk about it. Turn to Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, this is our anchor text for this attribute. And I'm gonna read verses 12 to 14. This is once again, Paul writing to a church. And he's giving a therefore statement, very similar actually to the context in Romans chapter 12. Take a look at verse 12 of Colossians 3. So, which is another way of saying therefore, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What a great wholehearted passage this is. He literally uses the word heart, but I want you to notice what he does. He actually starts with the thoughts. He starts with the renewed mind. Did you catch that in verse 12? He says, as those who have been chosen of God, he's proclaiming your identity. Like, you're chosen. Do you believe it? The, the, the next phrase, you're holy. Do you believe it? You're beloved. Like, you're loved by God. Now, I want you to think about the gospel for a minute. It always, stay, it, it always starts in the head, but it doesn't stop in the head. Okay, now, I, I want to I want to say, I said this last service, I thought, should I have said this or not? But I'm going to say it again. There's a saying out there that says, preach the gospel always, use words when necessary. And a lot of us like that. I like that. I've thought about that many times, but, but I think that is missing the mark a little bit. Maybe not entirely, but at least a little bit. And here's, here's the idea. The gospel by nature is a proclamation of news. It is a verbal proclamation. Something happened. Like, how do you explain news without some words? So all of us at one point in time heard a proclamation, heard the news, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised again, and that news has implications for you. 
So the gospel starts in your head, and that's where Paul starts here. But where does he go next? He says, in light of that news, put on a heart of compassion. Did you know that compassion is the most used emotional word for the life of Jesus? Over and over again, you hear Jesus had compassion. Jesus had compassion. Jesus had a lot of emotions, by the way. Jesus had anger. Jesus had all kinds of emotions. Compassion was the one that was listed the most. So Paul's saying, put on a heart of compassion. And he doesn't stay there. He goes through all these other, which, which really sound a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, from Galatians. But don't miss how relational the words are. The key phrase, I think, is when he gets to just as the Lord forgave you. Now, I want you to think about this. This is how the gospel works. When you realize that you have been forgiven, not, of your, not because of your baptism, not because of your works, not because of your giving, not because of your relatively good moral behavior, but you've been forgiven through Christ's life and death on your behalf, then you can start to realize, oh, that means... I'm okay. That means I'm safe. Do you realize the power emotionally of what happens when an individual believes that they are accepted, that they are loved in all of their stuff? You know, it, it says, in your sin, Christ died for you. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the emotional power of the gospel. To, to free you up from this idea that I've got to grab onto acceptance and love and forgiveness because I don't deserve it. You're right, you don't deserve it. It's been given to you as a gift. Receive it and be transformed. And let that transformation then transform your heart, transform the area of your heart that we would call your emotional life. Let me put the definition on the screen. I think you'll start to understand this a little bit better. Here's our definition of healthy relationships. As our inner being is made whole through faith in Jesus we can begin to move toward wholeness in how we relate to God, ourselves, and others. That's Colossians 3, 12 to 14. And I want to emphasize God, ourselves, and others. I, I know when I put healthy relationships here, everybody in the room was just thinking about marriages and parenting and friendships, and we want you to think about all those things. That's part of it. But it starts with your relationship with God and then yourself. So Jesus says in the greatest command when he's asked that question, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there is a sense here that becoming transformed in the area of your, relation, of your uh, 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 emotional life results in healthy relationships, first and foremost, with God. And then you begin to realize that, that I am accepted through the gospel. That means I don't have to take from people. I don't have to be thirsty for the love and acceptance that I'm craving. I have been given that, and now I can give it to others. Here's the bottom line as, as I've thought about this a little bit. Transformation of your emotional life through the gospel will always be felt by the people around you. Will always be felt as you grow. Will always be felt by your relationships. Let me illustrate this with a quick story about my friend Will. Will's a young dad. He's got a bunch of 
kids, young kids. In fact, he just had a, another one. Uh, but he told us a story recently about one of his daughters and conversation he had in the last couple weeks where he, he just kind of blew up. Now, you know, no one's ever done that in this room with our children, I'm sure, right? But there was something she did that didn't sit right with him. And, and rather than just correcting her, he just exploded on her. Now, Will tells the story this way. A year or two ago, I don't think I ever would have followed up and done anything about that. I just would have felt guilty. But Will has been growing in the gospel and Will has become, been becoming more emotionally aware and what he was able to do in light of the forgiveness that he received from Christ, he knew he needed forgiveness from his daughter. So he went to his daughter, even though he's much, much older than her, and he said, listen, I need to tell you that I was wrong. I don't want to ask you to forgive me. And she looked at him as, you know, the innocence of kids do, and they're like, sure, you know, you're forgiven. Now, small little story, and I hope we all have examples of this in our own lives, similar things, but I want you to think about how this little girl's relationship with her dad is now going to be shaped over years through that kind of pattern of a dad who is not too insecure to go to his little daughter and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Would you forgive me? You see how his inner transformation is resulting in a transformation of a relationship. That's how this works. So starts with the renewed mind, very quickly moves to your relationships. And don't we all need help there? We all need help there. And results begins to result in healthier relationships. Now let's talk about the next one, and we're gonna come over here to, the, to the, the core of our desires, of our heart. What's the outcome of transformation in the area of our desires? Well, we wanna call it a satisfied soul. A satisfied soul. Let me explain what we mean by that. Turn to John chapter seven. John chapter seven, I'm gonna read in a moment, verse 37 and 38, but let me give you the context for this. The context matters Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's not that long before he's gonna die, but in this case, it's not the Passover feast. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the whole nation has gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate God's provision for them in the yearly harvest and also looking back to their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness generations ago. And it's in the context of this feast celebration that Jesus is gonna proclaim what you're about to hear and, and read. John 7, verse 37. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. There would have been no learned Hebrew individual hearing Jesus' voice that would not have said, the thirst belongs to God. He sends the rain. And even as the psalmist had said in Psalm 42, as the deer pants or thirsts for water, my soul thirsts for you, O God. And now Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, come to me. What was he saying? He's saying, I'm God. And not only am I God, but I can satisfy your thirst, your thirsty soul that the psalmist was talking about. 
Let me read to you our definition of a satisfied soul, and hopefully this will keep uh, sinking in. Here's what we believe a satisfied soul looks like. As we become aware of our deepest desires and offer them to Jesus, we discover that what we long for most deeply is most fully satisfied in him. Think back to the, the corporate prayer of confession that, that Luke led us through earlier, was talking about this, the thirst of our souls, the unsatisfied places in us. And Jesus is saying, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's an invitation for us. And that's an invitation for our thirsty community. This is what a satisfied soul looks like. Now, I have to say this. You will never reach this perfectly, completely, this side of your eternal home. In fact, you won't reach any of these four characteristics or measures perfectly. But there is growth to be had. There's progress to be made. There is more and more satisfaction for your soul that can come even this side of eternity as you wait for it to be fully satisfied. Let me illustrate that by telling you about my friend John. I've known John a very long time. John, like, like many of us, has struggled for many years in his thought life, just struggling to have pure thoughts. And in most of John's life, he's just felt guilt over that and kept hitting a wall. I just, whatever he would do, he would just say, I, I can't get past this wall. And through some conversations he had and some other things that he started praying about, he, 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 he started asking a different question. Rather than what's wrong with me and why can't I fix this area of sin in my life, he started asking this question. What's the deep longing of my soul that I'm turning to this sin to try to satisfy that's a powerful question. And there'd be different answers for different people. But for John, the answer was, honestly, I think the deepest longing desire of my soul is intimacy. Is to be known by someone, and, and he would even put it this way, to be desired by someone. And so in light of being able to name that unsatisfied desire, what then could he do? He could obey John 7 and say, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. And so, so John's prayer about this issue of his life transformed. And here's, here's what he prays now. It sounds more like this. Jesus, I'm thirsty for intimacy and I'm struggling with this deep desire. Would you help me? And so what he's doing is he's bringing his thirsty soul to Jesus. And although there's still some struggle in his life, as he's shared with me, this area has been transformed and he's finding newness of life in this area from taking his unsatisfied soul and bringing his thirst to Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, Jesus says. Well, I wanna move on to our fourth and final outcome or measure, and then we'll put all these together. What does transformation of the area of our choices, of our will, of our volition, what does that actually look like? Well, we'll say it this way. It looks like an active faith. By the way, you can all sort of like sigh, uh, breathe a sigh of relief as the broken heart is finally put together, right? You've been waiting for this for four weeks now. But it looks like an active faith. Let me explain what we mean by that. Turn to one more passage, Matthew chapter 7. 
while you turn there, I'll just give you this brief context. This is the last thing that Jesus says in his famous Sermon on the Mount. All right, so Jesus has been teaching. Probably the most quoted passage of Jesus' teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, and what he's essentially been doing is deconstructing for his audience what they think righteousness is and pointing them to a deeper, wholehearted righteousness that is impossible for them on their own. And he's been teaching all these things, and he gets to the end, and, and he, he says this in Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, here's what Jesus is essentially saying. He's saying, don't let the words I've given you pass you by without doing something with them. Don't let them, as, as my dad used to tell me, don't let them go in one ear and out the other ear. Right? The word of God, in this case, it was literally the, the verbal words of Jesus Christ. For us, it's what we read here, is designed for you not just to hear, but for you to put into action. And that's what Jesus is getting after. That's how transformation happens. Do you remember some time ago, Lloyd taught that message in Ecclesiastes. We talked about the word Shema in Hebrew, to hear. He said there was no other word used for obey. It wasn't that like you hear and then you obey. Shema is both. Shema, to hear, to really hear, means you hear and you obey. And this is the weight of God's word. When we come under it, we are to hear and we are to obey. We are to live it. So Jesus in this sermon was saying, I'm giving you a way to build your life on something solid, but it does no good if you don't do something with it. Build your life on this teaching, Jesus is saying. And that's what we're saying as well. Put your faith into action. Let me give you our definition of an active faith. We'll put it on the screens. As God speaks to us, we hear and we act. And those two are, are purposely married to each other. Living out what we believe through immediate and tangible steps of obedience. This, this is the fruit of the kind of church that's becoming, it's finding wholehearted life in Jesus. Um, this is who fellowship has always been at its best. For those of you that have been around a lot of years, do you remember that Sunday when, when Lloyd taught a message and then he said, let's take off our shoes and give our shoes away? And hundreds of people, many of you in this room, left with no shoes on that morning. We don't have to look even back further than earlier this year when there was a, a baptismal right here. And, and the invitation was, if you've never been baptized and you put your faith in Jesus, what are you waiting for? Though There's water, you know? And I don't know how long this service ran, but like the whole day went like three hours long because there were so many people responding to that. Like, th this is how we want to live, guys. It's the word of God. Don't just know it, but live it. Amen. This is what Jesus would say to us. And I think this is kind of the ultimate fruit of all four of these quadrants, the, the gospel transforming us. Let me illustrate this really quickly. Let me tell you about my friends, Paul and Fran. Known Paul and Fran for four years here at Fellowship. We're in a group with them, in our fellowship group. And about a year ago, Paul and Fran, who, by the way, have three little kids and, and travel soccer league and busy lives, just like many of us here. They just felt God calling them to something. And they took the first step to explore being foster parents. And the more they prayed about that and read about that, 
the more they realized there's something stirring in their hearts. God worked in their minds, their emotions, their desires, and then they could have just left it there, but they took a step of active faith and they said yes. And about a month ago, they were placed, they were, they were um, given an 18-month-old sweet little girl who's been through unspeakable tragedy and they are caring for her right now until they know where she will be permanently. And they're, they're open to that being them, but that's yet to be determined. They're busy. They've got a lot going on, but they went through this process. And, and this is why, how I want to explain the order that we, we've, we've stated this in. It starts with truth as your mind is renewed. It goes down into your emotional self, begins to transform your relationships. There's some things deep in you that are unlocked when you realize the gospel really is true. That begins to stir your desires and you're able to take these unmet, unsatisfied desires and bring them to Jesus and that's always gonna result in an active faith. Now you say, Rob, you could have put it in any order. You had us kind of, why didn't you just have us go around the heart? That would have made more sense logically. Don't miss what's in the middle of the heart. Look at the space in between these four screens. It's a cross. This pathway of transformation always goes through the cross. Your renewed mind will always take you to the gospel. It is the gospel that will transform your relationships. Your satisfied soul, in order to choose something new, something different, to go to the true source of water and not the broken cisterns that you're trying to satisfy your soul in, is gonna go through Jesus. It's gonna go through the cross, the only way that you can live out your faith. So Jesus is at the center of wholehearted life. And we are called to help people find him and find it. And that has to start with us first. So I want you to think about a renewed mind in a context of a culture with a lot of lies and half-truths that they're believing. I want you to think about healthy relationships in the context of a culture where marriages are a wreck, where Parents don't know how to parent their kids where friendships are broken, where our friends are these shallow things we call social media connections. I want you to think about a satisfied soul in the context of a culture that's thirsting for something that they don't even know where to find. And I want you to think about active faith in a culture of passivity, in a culture of half-hearted religion. That is not what God has called us to. He's called us to be wholehearted people finding life in Jesus alone. Let me pray for us as the band comes out and then we're gonna sing a song and be dismissed. Our Father, I know for me there is almost a holy moment when I think about what you have called us to be and do. And the more we learn about your desire for us as a church, the more energy it fuels and the more humility because I look at those four characteristics on the screen behind me and I think, how, how can we become? And the answer is not by us, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. So I pray, Father, on behalf of the men and women in this room and those watching online, would you do a unique work in our inner beings, in our hearts. 
Would you grow us into the kind of people that are finding wholehearted life in Jesus to such a degree that it would spill out over us as Jesus promised in John chapter seven, that we ourselves from out of our inmost being would flow rivers of living water that other people could drink? Could that be true, that that would be true of this church? I believe so. And so, Father, we come to you spirit-dependent, knowing that if you do not act in us, we are an empty shell. But we also know you are in us, and we claim that and look to the future with joy and celebration, proclaiming that Jesus really is the king of our hearts. And we ask these things in his name alone.